All right, we're still going beyond in our series on the book of Acts. I did uh, think a couple of weeks ago you'd be maybe encouraged to know this, uh, compared to what this series could be through the book of Acts, this is uh, relatively short, but it might not seem that way to you. I could, I could make it much longer. You just trust me on that. But um, I, I read recently somebody uh, remarking about a sermon series one pastor preached through the book of Romans, and it was an eight-year series. So we're doing okay. We're doing all right. But go ahead and open your Bible to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. Acts 7, 51 to 60. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find this on page 776 or 816 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. And whether your own or the Pew Bible or even your phone or some other device, I'd love for you to have um, a Bible open to this passage and follow along as we go. Now, I'm hearing feedback, and I hope that doesn't promise anything ominous for us. But as it turn in there, I'll, uh, I'll just start with this. You know, I think probably most of us have had the experience where we see someone um, and think, hey, that person looks familiar. And we realize it's not because we actually know that person or have met them or seen them somewhere before, but they just look like somebody else, remind us of somebody else. Like you, you see, a, you know, maybe your waitress comes to the table or whatever and then, and then leaves and you turn to your spouse and say, you know, she kind of reminds me of somebody, an actress or somebody, who is it? And you have one of those little exchanges. I don't know if you uh, have that happen before, but I think probably most of us have had that sort of experience. I actually used to be on the receiving end of this uh, earlier in my life. When I was a sophomore in high school, the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out. <laughs> and, uh, and especially at that time, I looked strikingly like Ferris Bueller. And so I got that often. And uh, in, in fact, in, in many years after that, uh, you know, it, it just became Matthew Broderick, who was the actor that played Ferris Bueller. And I would hear that, you know, when I went different places and off to college and in my work life and that sort of thing. And, and then it would, you know, people would come up and say, you know, you remind me of somebody. And I would just wait for it, wait for it. It's Matthew Broderick, you know. But anyway, uh, we've, we, we know that sort of experience where we see somebody and go, you know, you remind me of someone. Well, as followers of Jesus, our desire should be that our speech and conduct are so representative of him that people think in so many words, you know what, you remind me of someone. I know who it is. It's Jesus. And that was literally said of the apostles. They recognized that, he had, that they had been with Jesus. It could have been said of Stephen as well. And we, like Stephen, should want to represent him that way right up until we take our very last breath. And that's the topic of this morning's sermon from Acts 7, 51 to 60. Look there with me now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 51. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. 
As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come to the time in the service where we open your word to hear from you. We know, as we acknowledged earlier, we are a needy people and you delight for us to find provision for our need, answers to our problems, Lord, to find those in you who are our all in all. And so we do just ask that you would show us yourself inside your word and show us ourselves and our need for you. You know every need represented in this room. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would minister to each one of those needs. And so we ask, as we always do, that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, and for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, this is, this is one of only two or three sermons in this series that will be drawn uh, from a passage of Scripture that's longer than we could reasonably read together. And so that's why I picked up in verse 51, where I did, the background passage for this message is actually, uh, it actually begins in verse 8 of chapter 6, where we left off last week, and then runs all the way through chapter 7. It was 75 or 76 verses, and uh, I thought that might have been a little ambitious for us to stand and read all of that together. But like I said, one of two or three that'll be that way. Last week, we were in the first seven verses of chapter 6, and you'll recall that when the church was growing by leaps and bounds, that a dispute arose among the Hellenists that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who not only spoke the Greek language but had adopted some uh, Greek cultural customs as well, and they represented a cultural minority of about 10 to 20 percent of the population. And they saw their widows were being underserved and they raised the concern to the apostles and the apostles put the matter before the whole congregation and told them to pick out seven men 
who were reputable, wise, and spirit-filled, and that they would be appointed to this task of resolving that problem. And the congregation, you may remember, put together, uh, put forward seven men with Greek names. It would appear Hellenists themselves that they put forward to take care of this problem of inequitable treatment toward the Hellenists. They were going to oversee that on behalf of the entire congregation. Well, Stephen was one of those men. In fact, he was the first one mentioned. And after that problem was resolved, if you, if you kind of let your eyes now fade back to verse 8 of chapter 6, and, and you can just sort of track loosely along with me as I give you a short narration of what we didn't read. But after that problem was resolved, we're told that Stephen was doing great signs and wonders and apparently went into at least one synagogue and proclaimed the gospel there. And the interesting thing about this is not only does he appear to be a Hellenist with a Greek name of Stephen, he goes into a synagogue of Hellenists. It says it's the synagogue of the freedmen. It includes their Cyrenians, who are from North Africa, Alexandrians, who are from Egypt, and those from Cilicia and Asia, which would have been a region north of Palestine, but a, a, a place in the Greco-Roman world. A Hellenist speaking in a synagogue to Hellenist, to people who weren't glad to see and hear him, as we would find out. But like Jesus, Stephen spoke with wisdom that his opponents simply could not answer. And like Jesus, he was confronted with false witnesses who brought false accusations against him of charges of blasphemy and dishonoring Moses and the temple and the law. And I'll, and I'll say here, it seems very intentional on Luke's part to paint these comparisons or these similarities between Stephen and Jesus the same way that he's done um, for the apostles or about the apostles. In other words, they look and sound a lot like Jesus in the way that they go about doing ministry. And so does Stephen, operating in power, speaking wisdom that can't be refuted, and then receiving the false accusations that come along with it. And so even in the midst of those false accusations, it says in verse 15 there that everyone in the Sanhedrin looked at him and saw that his face looked like the face of an angel. And yet they went on about accusing him uh, in spite of that fact. And in his own defense, in chapter 7, he walks through this narrative of the great leaders of Jewish history, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And that's about the first 19 verses of chapter 7. And then picking up in verse 20, he spends most of his time talking about Moses, the one he's accused of blaspheming. And then sort of concludes with a brief summary of Joshua, David, and Solomon, and a few remarks about the temple. But in that message, we, we see a couple of things. First of all, um, it sets up for us the account of the first Christian martyr. Stephen is the first man in the New Testament to die because he was a Christian. And then out of that stoning and the persecution that follows from it, um, the church is scattered out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria 
and the ends of the earth. It's exactly what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the way they get there is by way of an intense persecution that follows this story right here. And so what we're going to see, this is a pivot point in the whole book of Acts because the center of the story moves out of Jerusalem and into other regions. The apostles will remain in Jerusalem. There will still be um, sort of a central hub of the church itself. But the story that Luke tells us actually begins to move outside of Jerusalem following the end of that story. This is what's set up here in the stoning of Stephen. But in the sermon that he gives there as part of his defense, there's two important points that he's making to the people listening. And number one, that those who accuse him of blaspheming Moses have never honored Moses with their obedience either. That's one of the points that he makes. Number two, that those who accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple have overlooked the fact that God himself said he doesn't dwell in man-made houses because man-made houses can't contain him. That the work he's going to do in redeeming man is much bigger than what a temple can hold or what temple sacrifices can accomplish. And that's what he sets up with that message. But we see in the course of that that someone who goes into the world in the name of Jesus should be recognizable as his. That was the case with Stephen. People could see he belongs to Jesus. And specifically, John 1.14 tells us that when the second person of the Trinity came into the world, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That what was revealed about the invisible God to mankind when God took on human form, the, in, in John's telling of it there, the most notable attribute of Jesus in revealing the glory of God was a fullness of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't part grace and part truth just like he wasn't part God and part man. He's fully God and fully man, and he's fully grace and fully truth. And Stephen looked like Jesus in the way he proclaimed the truth and the way he expressed grace. And that's really the message for us today as well, that as people aspiring to go beyond Sunday, beyond the walls and beyond the borders, that we want to look like Jesus in the way we proclaim truth and the way we express grace. Let's look first at Stephen's example here of proclaiming the truth like Jesus. After this walk that he took through highlights of Old Testament history, he takes a sharp turn in verses 51 to 53. Now, we began reading in verse 51. If you were reading the narrative, you would see he seems to be just telling this fairly benign summary of Israel's history. And then he takes a sharp turn and says in verse 51 this that we just read. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in ears, in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, you will not find that in any chapter 
of how to win friends and influence people. But he makes it perfectly clear. He makes it perfectly clear where they stand with God. In other words, he tells the truth. Now, obviously, they don't accept his words as true, but he proclaims it to them unambiguously as the truth. Now, I do think it's important to recall that Jesus reserved his harshest words for religious leaders, not for sinners, right? If you've read the gospel, you, you, uh, Gospels, you've taken notice of this fact because religious folks had kept people bound up and, and burdened and oppressed with their religious traditions and requirements rather than liberated by them. And the apostles, and now Stephen, do the same thing. They, they, they are quite pointed in their language that they use directed toward religious leaders. And, and we'll notice that as we move out of Jerusalem, that, that the, the tone and the language will change a little bit as they go into um, more of a pagan world. And that's part of what we want to um, be intentionally looking for is as the gospel moves out of the religious center and into the Greco-Roman pagan world, in what sense does the message stay the same and yet, how do the methods change slightly because of the people they're talking to? Well, that's one of the things we just want to be mindful of and, and, and partly because we don't want in our own day to speak to an increasingly post-Christian culture as if it's Christian. We don't want to speak to irreligious people as if they're religious, right? You don't, you don't start with um, the assumption of a belief and knowledge in the Bible, if you've got people who have never opened a Bible, don't know anything it said and don't care about it, right? You don't want to. You don't want to start in the wrong place. That's part of what the point I'm belaboring, and I'll move on from that now. But at the same time, when we do have an opportunity to speak truth to unbelievers. We don't want to be wishy-washy or muddled about it either. And like Jesus, Stephen tells these people clearly that the very law they claim to uphold actually condemns them. That they haven't kept it. And we've seen in, in earlier chapters of Acts that the apostles were equally direct when they preached in the temple. Do you remember some of this? If you've been tracking with us, uh, you know how directly Peter and the apostles spoke to the people in the temple. But Stephen, unlike the apostles, didn't even get the chance to continue with the message that through Christ's death and resurrection, God had provided forgiveness of sins. Because this was a powder keg moment. And he lit the fuse and the whole thing blew up. They dragged him out of the city and stoned him because he spoke the truth. In the last 10 or 15 years, trends within evangelical Christianity have caused many professing believers to drift from the truth. 
And the research that's been done seems to suggest there are a few factors behind that drift. Number one, there are fewer believers, fewer professing believers anyway, who know what the Bible teaches. And again, I'm, I'm actually thinking of some research I've read, particularly the Pew Forum would be one that does a lot of research in this area. But there are, there are fewer believers, a smaller percentage of believers who actually know the content of the Bible. Number two, fewer believers, professing believers, have confidence that the Bible is totally true and trustworthy. Now let me just say parenthetically, that is, that's, that's a bad road to go down. I mean, that one's going to lead you to uncertainty and confusion and ultimately the destruction of either you or somebody, a lack of confidence in the scripture that it's totally true and trustworthy. But that's one of the findings about the church of our day. And number three, and maybe this is most instructive for, for us, most important for us to understand that many believers think that in decades past, the church has wielded the truth in a judgmental and a condescending, abusive kind of way. And their reaction to that has been an overreaction. So, in, in other words, to avoid misapplying the truth in that way, there are many who just fail to apply it at all. They've seen, they've seen what the church has said and done to, to the unbelieving world, how hurtful that's been in their own uh, judgment. And so to, to avoid doing that themselves, they might just fail to apply the truth at all. But that can lead us into the error of presuming to offer a gospel of grace that is devoid of the truth that makes grace gracious. Now let me explain what I just said. <laughs> Rewind the tape. And, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll point to Romans 5.8 that says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we don't have an understanding that we stand before God as sinners apart from Christ, then grace is a meaningless concept. That we, we stand... Outside of Christ, we stand before God in our sin. Not only separated from him, but subject to his wrath that is stored up to be poured out on sin. Again, this is not something you hear as often in the modern day evangelical church, which is the reason I mention it. <laughs> is this um, aversion to obscuring of or even absence of the truth in that regard, that grace, that the grace is that God Himself made a way for us to be saved from His wrath. That the message of salvation in Christ is that God saves us from God, which sounds like heretical. That's it, but that's what the Bible says. That he demonstrated his love for us in that way that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the truth that makes grace gracious. And part of what we have to do as people who go beyond the walls of the church to proclaim the gospel, we need to be sure that we proclaim 
unambiguously the truth. But we also need to be sure that like Jesus and like Stephen, that we express grace as well. Now, Stephen doesn't even get the message of God's grace out of his mouth, as I said, before the crowd shouts him down and takes him out to stone him. Now, you'll remember each time the apostles had preached a similar message. I mean, they were really pointed in their language, right? You remember they said things like, this Jesus whom you crucified and killed, God raised up. And through him, forgiveness of sins is available. That was essentially the message. They said things like in chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In chapter 3, verse 19, repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. In chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They were not preaching a message of condemnation, but a message of salvation. But Stephen never got to utter those words even. Because look what happened beginning in verse 54, and I'll read through the beginning of 58. Look there. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They ground their teeth initially, but then when he claimed to see Jesus standing with the Father, they literally plugged their ears and started shouting. This is playground stuff. La, 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 I'm not listening. <laughs> they're, they're shouting and plugging their ears so they can't even hear what he's saying. That's literally what happens here. And they lay their hands on him and drag him out of the city to stone him. He doesn't have the chance to add that part of the message. But this Jesus whom you killed, God raised up and he's made provision of sins through him. He doesn't even get there. But even at that, Stephen got the last word. And look at what that last word was. Look in verse 60. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That sounds a lot like Jesus once again, doesn't it? That as he was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that Jesus, or sorry, Stephen as he is uttering his very last breath, utters a word pleading for God to forgive the very people who are killing him. His heart was not to condemn the people he was speaking to, but to save them. That's what grace looks like. And we should have the same heart for people that we interact with. We're not out to win arguments but to win people. We're not out to win arguments. We're out to win people. Many of you have picked up on the fact that one of my great concerns for the church of our day 
is that we have gotten swept up into this polarized and, and at times mean-spirited shouting match that tries to pass as public discourse. I don't know if it's true everywhere. It's true in the United States of America for sure. And it often seems as if the goal in those encounters is to put the other person in his place. And if you're really good at it, you'll make him look like a downright fool. And there is no room for the grace of God left in that approach. There's just no room for it. And frankly, there's, there's no room really in our hearts to even make room for it, right? There's no room for God's grace in that. And so let me ask this question. Based on the way that you engage in discussion with people of different beliefs or different viewpoints, okay, people of different beliefs, of different persuasion, if they found out where you went to church, would that make them more or less likely to want to visit? Now, let me ask the question in a slightly different way. If those people found out where you went to church, would the rest of us be glad about that? Or would we wish you had done a better job keeping it a secret? As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the heart that we're supposed to have for the unbelieving world a heart that is full of grace and that implores people to be reconciled to God. And that's why if we're always taking people to the cross, it is far more likely we'll find ourselves representing Christ through our proclamations and demonstrations of grace and truth. Because Romans 3, 25 and 26 tells us that through the cross... God showed his righteousness in punishing sin and he showed his forbearance in passing over sin. It says that he is just and he's justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the same event, the same act on the cross God shows himself to be both just and justifier, but both upholding the truth of his righteousness and by grace making provision for sin to be forgiven. And that's the good news of the gospel, that the one who was the embodiment of the fullness of grace and truth also gave expression to that fullness in his work for us on the cross. And beyond the walls, beyond Sunday and beyond the borders, that's the message we want to convey. And that's the Lord and Savior that we want to represent even to our very last breath. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we just thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You died for me, Lord. And I don't know me as well as you do. 
but I suppose I know the real me better than anybody else does. And I marvel at the fact that you made a way for me to be forgiven of my sin, not just to have my sins covered, but to have them washed as white as snow and made right with you. Lord, we thank you for that message. And God, would you just stir up our affections for Jesus out of an understanding of that very fact of what you have done for each of us who believe in him on the cross. Stir up our affections for him, Lord, and just cause us to live among the people of our community out of an understanding of the truth that you've declared and the grace that you've shown to us and just make us a people who offer the same to more and more people who need to hear it and need to see it from us. Show us the things in our heart that would cause us to withhold truth from people or be muddled about the way that we articulate it on one hand and show us the things in us, Lord, that cause us to wield the truth like a hammer where we almost punish people with it. And Lord, would you undo those things in us that would keep us from being the instrument of your work in our day and in our place and make us indeed people who remind the world of Jesus in the way we speak and the way we live. And we ask it in his name, amen.